much to be thankful for it's christmas oh how i miss this but through the joy and laughter you can feel your sadness
Holy cow, you guys can have a seat. What a way to start. Good morning, my name is Jordan, and I have with me today my good friend, John L. John L, say hello and how do you do to the fine folks. Hello, how do you do? Yes, all right. We are thrilled, um, as some of us, the rest of you guys are, to be here this morning, and we got a couple of things we want to make you aware of as always, first of all, if you are a middle or high school student or you have a middle or high school student in your household, they are going to be having a party this evening at 545 over in what I call the old sanctuary, what they call nowadays the student sanctuary. Um, at 545, it's going to be a great time. I think there's going to be food, lots of fun, so make sure to get your kids over there. And on that note, next week, of course, is Christmas Eve. They will not be having service because of some things that are going on here uh, on Christmas Eve that we'll talk about here in a moment, but I think John L. has something to share with you as well. This Wednesday, guys, is Jingle Jam! Yeah! And it is hosted by yours truly, us two. It will take place after all the dinner and stuff that's going on, and we hope to see you. It's a fun little story about the Christmas story and the birth of Jesus, and I really want you guys to come. It's going to be awesome. Uh, this will take the place of our usual Wednesday night services or classes. So you come at 530 like normal uh, down in the Family Life Center. We're going to have our meal. And then 630, we're all going to gather here uh, for the party. That is Jingle Jam that we are really looking forward to. We hope you guys will attend. John L. Um, has a lot of special stuff planned, I think. Also, we want to make you guys aware of later this week, we're doing something really awesome. We did something similar to this um, in the springtime during Easter, but we're going to be doing what we call the Journey to Bethlehem. Now, this is an interactive thing for you to bring your family to. It's going to be happening on Thursday, Friday. It's going to be open from 3 to 9 p.m. on Thursday and Friday, and then 10 to 2 on Saturday. But this is uh, allow about an hour it's going to be a walkthrough. We're going to have all these different interactive, immersive exhibits and basically take you, let you travel back in time to what Bethlehem would have been like 2,000 years ago. So this is really cool. Once again, um, on Thursday and Friday, it's going to be open from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. Come anywhere in that time slot. Allow about an hour. And then on Saturday, it's going to be open from 10 to 2. So we really want, to, want you guys to get out here. If you can, you can bring the whole family. There will be no child care, though. So you will be caring for those children. I will be caring for my children as we walk through, which is going to be an adventure in and itself. But, uh, you know, we'll try to make the best of it. All right, Jono? And next week, as we know, it's Christmas Eve. You know, that's the good part. But Yeah, they're not very excited for Christmas no, Eve. No Christmas Come Eve. Come on. No Christmas Eve? What's going on? <laughs> We've got next some special week, things happening Christmas Eve, though. Uh, next week will be normal service, 9.30 and 11 a.m. But at night, at 6 p.m., we'll be having a candlelight communion. If, from 6 to 8, and if you guys want to come in, stop by with your family and just appreciate what is going on, and just, uh, we would really want you to come, and we're delighted. Absolutely. That's going to be really cool. Once again, 6 to 8 p.m., we'll have the sanctuary open for the candlelight communion. You can come at your own pace, bring your family if you want to, but it's just going to be a special time available on Christmas Eve, which is really cool. Now, if you've been with us for the last couple weeks, you know we've been in this series, um, and typically, you know, as Christians, during Christmas time, we always try to emphasize that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? I mean, more so than Santa or presents or any of that sort of stuff. But Doc kind of flipped that on his head, on its head for the past couple of weeks, and we've been talking about how really you and I are the reason for the season, right? And not from a selfish standpoint, but just that's the reason Jesus came for you and for me, and that's pretty cool. Um, but we're going to talk, we're going to go a little bit of a different direction today. Ben's going to lay out sort of some of the mystery that is revealed by Christmas. And to get us warmed up, John L., I think you have a little game that you want us to play, is that right? Of course. Speaking of mystery, I love mystery. I love presents. I love Jesus. Me too. So Amen. we're going to get into this game. 
I need you guys to help out Jordan. There's going to be a zoomed up image. Need lots of help. On the screen. Can you guys help Jordan out to figure what this is? All right, so we're looking at an image that's zoomed in upon. That is zoomed in. And it's we have to crisp. guess what that image is when you zoom out and figure. Of course, of okay. course. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, so this is black and white. This is obviously probably a scene from the Andy Griffith Show, circa 1963, possibly Christmas in Mayberry. Shout out, 10 year anniversary. Uh, I'm gonna say episode five, season three of the Andy Griffith Show. I don't know what that is, I'm too young. But that's not what it is. It's tinsel. Oh, got it, right guess? Oh, very well done, excited. Okay, I think they got the gist of it, let's go. You got any more of these? Yeah, 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 next one, next one, next one. This one okay. should be pretty easy. All right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You know? What are the guesses? Okay. A simple, a simpleton would say that this is some portion of Santa's outfit, maybe his hat. I don't think that's true at all. This is actually clearly some toothpaste, that brand that's really terrible. I don't know what it's called. Colgate, maybe? Zoomed in upon. I'm going toothpaste. So far, yet so close. Survey it says? Is candy cane. Which are one of the four major food groups. Can you name them? Candy. Candy canes. Candy corns and very well. You I don't see, get that joke. You've not seen Elf. I've never seen Elf. Wow. You're missing out. You're not a part of this church until you've seen Elf. I'm just saying. All right, you gotta have another one, right? All right, this one. This one should be very easy. You guys should get this in a yeah. snap. These okay? are the mashed potatoes that were on my plate that I did not eat for Thanksgiving because we all know how I feel about Thanksgiving food. You are so close. It's actually. Holiday cake. Holiday cake. Oh, it's the politically correct kind, not Christmas cake. It's holiday cake, holiday folks. Holiday cake. Thank you. Uh, do we have any more? This is easy. You got to... One more? Really easy. Really easy. Okay. I heard somebody say I, hot I'd dogs? Say it's the easiest one. I'm not going with hot dogs. I think it's the pine cone, the scented pine cones we have out in the lobby. They smell great. It's oh. actually a turkey. It's a picture of Steve Smith. What do you know about that? <laughs> All right, well, hopefully you guys are a little bit warmed up. You've seen some of these mysteries revealed, right? And that's what Ben's going to talk to us here in a moment about, uh, the mystery that Jesus revealed at Christmas time. But in the meantime, John L. and I are going to take a load off, and we're going to ask you guys to stand back up and worship the God who became man.
story didn't end at his birth. In fact, it was well before he even came to this earth that he was part of the story. He was there at the beginning with you and his light shined. And that continues as he came into this earth and showed us exactly what it looked like to have God among us. This Emmanuel, the one who brings peace and hope and joy, Father, this is what we all need. It's what we're reminded of when we come into this room and we sing Christmas songs and we do these things is that Jesus has changed everything because now we're able to see what you look like. Father, thank you so much for that demonstration. Thank you so much for what you've done different from any other religion, different from any other God, anything that people have ever experienced. You sent Jesus Christ so that we can know exactly what love looks like and sacrifice looks like. Thank you so much for all that you've done. 
It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Every week when we gather together, we take communion. And so when we go to the tables here in a few moments, we're going to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross. So we're going to take the bread and the juice together. And if you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk to you. If this place is your home and you want to give an offering, we have these boxes at each of the stations. They are brown, I'm told. I'm colorblind. I can't see colors. It hurts my heart every day. But uh, anyway, these boxes that are there, you can give your, uh, put your uh, offering that's in there. And if there's anything that you want to give outside of the offering that you've chosen to, to bring today, there are white buckets, generous buckets that uh, we want to give to people in need in this community. That's what that does as well. So let's go to the tables. Remember, this is the demonstration of God is found in Jesus Christ. I'd like to follow up on our announcements real quick, just a quick um, clarifying word, all right? This Christmas Eve service that we're doing next Sunday night is not really a service. It's just going to be an open room for you to come in at any point during those two hours. And so because of what we're doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we weren't going to do a service again on Sunday night. And so it's just a come and go as you wish. If you want to come in and do communion with your family, pray together, uh, that's what we've got offered to you, if that makes sense. So if you're making any plans uh, for your Christmas time, if you were expecting a service, you would be very disappointed when you showed up, all right? So that's what we've got going on. Now, as it's been said, as we've started out here, I do love mysteries. I think they're fun. I enjoy the game with the zoomed-in picture, and then it zooms out, and you can kind of see better what it is that, that it was supposed to be and trying to guess and play along. I enjoy that kind of stuff. I enjoy um, a, a TV show. One of my favorite TV shows is a show called Psych. It's a weird show. It's kind of funny. Um, it, it's, it's about this guy who claims that he's a psychic, and he uses it to, to solve crimes and mysteries, and it's, it's really dumb, actually, is what it is. But I find it humorous. I enjoy it. I enjoy watching the episodes and trying to figure out what's actually going on, trying to solve it as it goes along. And I love documentaries where you get behind the scenes. Okay, this is one of my favorite documentaries ever. 
even as I lived through that and I knew a lot of stuff, it was fun to hear some of the pieces behind the scenes of things that were going on and some of the mystery of the people and the stuff that was happening being revealed. I love those things, right? I like mysteries. But the truth is, I hate mysteries. I really hate them. This is so wrong, right? I'm lying to you. The, the mysteries, like most of the time when I watch a documentary, it doesn't reveal everything I want it to reveal. And at the end, I'm more angry than I was when I started watching it because it didn't answer all of my questions. And I go and I watch shows like Psych, but you would think if I really love mysteries, I would like watch lots of shows like that, and I don't. I just keep watching these ones over and over again. I know how it's going to end. I know how it's going to play out. I don't like not knowing I don't like the anxiety. I don't like the tension of things not being resolved or worked out. I like to know what's going on. I don't like being surprised. I have this personality disorder where I would rather watch something that I've already seen before than watch something I've never seen. My family absolutely hates this about me. They can't get me to watch new movies. It drives them nuts. And I just keep saying, hey, well, why don't we watch this movie we've already seen? We already know we like it. Right? <laughs> they hate it. I'm more comfortable with what I know than what I don't know. And there's some real-life mysteries as well, some that are fun, or maybe not as fun, but, but at least playful, like trying to figure out whose neighbor's dog keeps using your yard, right? Or maybe you're trying to figure out where all those snacks went that you bought yesterday, except that I, that's not a mystery to me. I live with three teenagers. I know where they went, right? Like they just disappeared. There's simple mysteries like that. There's some that are more serious. Try to figure out what's happening in my future. I think that's one of the big ones that we hold on to. What does my future hold? And when our life, maybe we're facing some tension, we want to know how it's going to get worked out. Some of you are wondering if you're ever going to get married. Some of you are wondering if you're going to stay married. Some of you are wondering how your kids are going to turn out. I think about my future and I worry about health as hard as that may be for you to believe. But I wonder, what kind of challenges am I going to have to face when I get older? Some people wonder how many careers they're going to have. Some people wonder if they're ever going to get ahead of their bills. And then there's just some really big mysteries in life. Big mysteries, big, big mysteries, stuff like this. Is there really a God? Is there really a God? And if there really is a God, what is he like? What does he do? Who does he care about? What does he not care about? What are the things that this God pays attention to? And what are the things that, he, that he's purposefully put into place? And what are the things that he seems to just be hands off about? And if God has revealed himself, are you willing to accept however it is that he has revealed himself? But if he doesn't act like you think God should act? And if I really want to know who this God is, how can I do that? Has he revealed himself? How can I find out about this God? If there really is a God, how is it that I can find out and discover him? What can I do to resolve this mystery, to remove the mystery around this God? What would be the best way for me to figure out who God is? Maybe for you that looks like reading the Bible. Some people maybe would, would go a different route. Maybe they would go on a deep search looking through different ancient religions trying to figure it out. Or maybe some people would travel the world 
to see what worship looks in all sorts of different cultures and contexts. But I think that regardless of what strategy you take, I think that eventually, I think eventually every single person will get to the point where they would just wish that they could see God face to face. Wouldn't that remove the mystery? In fact, I bet you've been there. I bet that there's been a time in your life where you've begged God to just simply reveal himself to you. Maybe you were struggling or hurting. Maybe it was a season of sadness or depression. Maybe there was something significantly burdensome or painful going on in your life. And in a moment of desperation, in a cry out to God, you ask him to reveal himself to you. I think there's something in all of us that wants to see God. Because we think, it's delusional, but we think that it will bring us comfort. Or that it will ease some sort of mystery of the things that are happening around us in the midst of our desperation. We think to ourselves, if I could just see God, maybe, maybe these frustrations or these confusions, these pains, maybe God could fix me or maybe he could make these problems go away. And I think most of us have probably prayed that prayer. And if you have, you're in good company. Jesus had a disciple named Philip who, in a moment of confusion, says the exact same thing. It's in John chapter 14, verse 8, where he says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Just show us the Father, and that will be enough to us. Jesus is talking to the disciples. Philip's confused. Jesus didn't exactly fit Philip's agenda for God. So Philip in his own mind is thinking that if I could just see God, if, if, if I could just see his face, then somehow that would resolve all of this confusion. It would resolve this mystery and allow me to see and understand better. He's not the first to think this. He's not the last. We see it in Exodus 33 with a guy named Moses, and I really believe, honestly, I think we've all been there. Those prayers where we have begged that God would just show himself to me. I think we've all been there because we don't really like the mystery. And again, it's self-deceiving. I don't think seeing God would be as comforting as we make it, but we believe that if God would just reveal himself, it would bring clarity. And besides, there's something at risk here. If God doesn't reveal himself, if I can't be sure of who God is, then there's a chance that I may be getting it wrong. You ever worried about that? That maybe you were worshiping God wrong? That there's a chance that maybe you're misunderstanding. We all tend to get it wrong from time to time anyway, right? The reality is we all have an idea about who God is, and I think all of us at some point get it wrong. It's really easy to do. In fact, there's a guy in the Bible, the New Testament, who's named Saul. And later his name becomes Paul. Something happens in his life and his name changes. And Saul was a very different man than Paul. He had a very different perception of God. Saul would tell you that he was right about God and that he was right with God. Saul believed that he was right about God and that he was right with God. He thought he had it figured out. He thought he understood God and that he knew God and that he was right about God and right with God. Paul writes a lot of the New Testament, not Saul, but Paul writes a lot of the New Testament. And there's this one spot in Philippians chapter 3 where he looks back at his previous life of who he was before he became Paul, and he writes about himself that he was faultless, that he was so good, 
he was so good at honoring his God that he was faultless. faultless. He lived exactly the way he was supposed to live. I think there's something about Saul and each of us that, uh, that makes sense. We all want a God who backs us in our agenda. But the same guy, Paul, who looks back and writes that he was faultless is the same guy who writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and he calls himself the worst. Well, which one is it? Are you faultless or are you the worst? And what changed? How does someone go from Saul to Paul? How does Saul, who is faultless, who's perfect, who's right about God and right with God, become Paul, who looks to himself and says, I'm the worst? Paul looks back. And he recognizes that he was actually wrong about God. That this mystery was something that he thought he had solved, but he was wrong. And what is it that causes Saul to become Paul? What changed for him wasn't an idea. It was an encounter with Jesus. It was that kind of thing that sometimes we find ourselves praying for. Saul had a face-to-face experience with God, and it caused him to change his life so much so that he even changed his name. And later, Paul would look back on all this, and he would write about it in Colossians chapter 2. And he recognizes that the Old Testament, the the ways that God had revealed himself in, in this mystery, it was really just what he calls a shadow. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. You ever notice that when you look at a shadow... You can see the form, you know what it is, but at the same time, it doesn't have all the detail. You get an idea of what's casting the shadow, but it doesn't have all the specifics, it doesn't have all the clarity to it. Somewhat mysterious. Paul says that there was an idea of who God was, an idea of what he wanted, but it felt like the best that you could get was a shadow. It felt like there was this ambiguity who God was and what he wanted. And Paul finishes by saying, the reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul says that he changed how he understood God, that the mystery was removed when he met Jesus. What had been a shadow has now become plain. Everything before was a shadow. Everything was a mystery until God sent the shadow maker, the shadow caster. And one of the reasons that Jesus shows up in a manger in Bethlehem is so that the mystery around God would be removed. Jesus would demonstrate for us who God is, who God likes, what God wants, what God values, what God does. All those questions that we may have, the mystery around God is revealed in Jesus. And if we go back to John chapter 14, that place where we started with Philip and he made this statement, he said, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough for us. Jesus teaches something really controversial and something really clarifying in that passage. Verse 8 is just in the middle of context. You got to start in verse 1. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he tells them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. That's a personal, like, like, perfect statement to make. There's no issues with any of that. But then he says, trust also in me. Does he cross a line there? Is there any part of you that's comfortable with trusting a person as much as you would trust God? Perfectly fine, perfectly acceptable, trusting the God part. But then he says, trust also in me. That's where he seems to cross a line. Maybe that's a line for you. 
There's an audacity here. There's a, almost even a heresy, a blasphemy in this moment to tell people that he, Jesus, is worth trusting in the same way that you could trust God. Do you hear how dangerous that is? Can you trust humans in that kind of a way? Do you hear how, do you hear how audacious it is? And it makes me wonder why the disciples just sat there. It seems like the very next verse should say something like the disciples got up and stormed out because Jesus had crossed a line, but it doesn't say that. They just sat there. They kept listening. Why would they have done that? It's a guy named Andy Stanley that I really look up to. He does a lot of good work in preaching and leading a church, and he looks at this scenario, and, and he points out something I think is really cool. He points out that just a few chapters in John's recounting of the gospel, just a few chapters before this moment, the disciples were all present when Jesus raised a man from the dead. They watched a guy who'd been dead for several days come walking out of his own tomb when Jesus showed up and just said a few words. Stench and all, I believe. I think the disciples really believed that Jesus was God. At least, I think they wanted to believe that Jesus was God. And so when Jesus says something like this, it didn't really cause any sort of issue for them. It didn't make them shudder at all. They believed that Jesus could be God, but they didn't understand why God was doing the things that he was doing. It was confusing to them. It didn't make sense. They couldn't comprehend Jesus' plans of action. Jesus' plan wasn't their plan. And so they're confused. Jesus goes on. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And then Jesus says, you know the way to the place I am going. That's where he messed the disciples up. Because they didn't know. That's where they get really confused. Jesus says, you know the way. And it's almost as if they kind of lean forward and say, wait a second. We don't know what you're talking about here. We don't know this way. In fact, Thomas actually speaks up. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. We don't know the way. Jesus says that they know the way to the Father's house. Disciples are thinking that they've traveled all over this region with Jesus for three years. They've traveled all over. The only place that Jesus has referred to as his Father's house was the temple. Is that what this is about? The temple doesn't have many rooms, and Jesus doesn't have the authority to go there and prepare rooms for them. That doesn't make sense. His language is absolutely confusing. And so they don't know where this house is that Jesus is talking about, and they don't know the way to get there. They don't comprehend it. They can't understand it. They're in a completely different wavelength than Jesus. It's a mystery to them. Lord, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answers. He says, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There was a mystery that existed before Jesus, and some choose to still live within this mystery. Before Jesus, there was this mystery of who God was and how you could get to him, how you could have a relationship with him, how you could have any sort of an understanding of who this God was. And so there were a lot of different gods that were worshipped in all sorts of ways to try to please these gods or bring blessings to these gods and hope that they would somehow bring a blessing back to you. 
And when Jesus says, I am the way, maybe he didn't cross a line with you before, but maybe he crosses a line with you here. This is blasphemous. This is heretical. This is audacious. The idea that he would say these words. He says that he's the way. He's the truth. He believes that no one gets to the Father without him. He says you're going to miss the Father. That you're not going to find your way to the Father if you try any way without Jesus. It's exclusive. It's exclusive. Hold on to that idea. Verse 7. Jesus says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You've seen him. What Jesus is saying is that you know what the father is like because you've been with the son. He's saying, if you really knew me, then you would know the father. If you really know Jesus, then you know God. And that one makes more sense to us. The whole idea of like father, like son. Most of you don't know my father. He's visited a couple times. He lives in Texas. Some of you have met him, but you haven't spent a large amount of time with him. But you should know that if you know me, if you've spent some time with me, then you probably know my father. We're a lot alike. In fact, from time to time, my mother will say, you're just like your father. Except she doesn't say it with that. Like, that was way too positive. That's not what she says. She says it in a derogatory tone. She says, you're just like your father, which I think is hilarious. And I usually smile when she says this, and I'll say back to her, well, that's fantastic because he's your favorite human. So, like, I I take that as a compliment, and she gets more angry because that's the exact type of thing my father would say. (laughs) Right? We understand this, don't we? I've got two teenage boys in my house, and if you don't know me, but you spend a lot of time with them, you know me. They're becoming more and more like me every day. God help them. (laughs) Jesus says if you've spent time with him, if you know him, if you've seen Jesus, then you've seen God. If you've begged God to reveal himself to you, if you want to see him face to face, Jesus says if you've seen him, then you've seen the Father. And it's so exclusive. His words are exclusionary. Oftentimes when we hear these words, we almost have this negative feeling about it because it means that it, that it eliminates or that it prevents people. It means that someone gets left out. But do you also understand that exclusivity creates clarity? When something is exclusive, it's clarifying, it's simplifying I think about the little rascals with their treehouse, fort, clubhouse thing that they have, and they have the sign on the front that says, no girls allowed. Do you guys remember that? And it's exclusive. It tells you who's allowed in and who isn't. It tells you what type of a club this is. It brings clarity. It brings simplicity. Jesus says that he is God, and that's important because everyone else has an opinion about who God is. Everyone has an opinion about who God is, but Jesus says, no, I'm God. And what if it's true? What if it's right? If what Jesus says is true, then there isn't any room for other options. Jesus makes exclusive statements that bring about clarity to this mystery of God. Everybody wants to know who God is, and Jesus says, come look at me. 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. It's exclusive, but it's clarifying. And it's still so very confusing because in verse 8, where we started, Philip says just like he's had enough and he doesn't get it. We don't get it either. He says, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Just let us see the Father. It's complicated. It's confusing. It's difficult. Even as Jesus is bringing about clarity, it's still confusing people. Philip says, just let us see God, please. Can we just make it easy and clear? Can you just please remove all of this mystery? He can't keep up and we can't keep up. But he does want to see God. Do you want to see God? And are you sure? Jesus answers him, I think probably a little bit frustrated at this point. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus tells the disciples, I'm as good as it gets. I'm as close as you're going to get. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm as good as it gets. There's no more mystery. Jesus has given us the personality of God. He's given us the actions of God. He's given us the works of God. He's given us the character of God. Jesus has given us the personality of God. Jesus has given us the morals of God. And the disciples don't get it. And we don't get it. I think Jesus takes a deep breath. He says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Don't you believe that? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. He's telling them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I think it's a fascinating little thing there at the end that Jesus says. Jesus came for the purpose of removing the mystery around God, to remove the distance from God. And if you struggle to understand how this mystery has been resolved in the person of Jesus, that's, that's fine. You're actually in good company. If you struggle to understand, Jesus gets it. He tries to care for you in the middle of your doubt or your struggle. And he says, at least just look at the evidence at least look at the evidence. Jesus is telling his disciples his ministry isn't built on words and claims. It's built on a foundation of power that is shown through love and service. How he lived was the evidence of who God is. Jesus adds personality to God. He removes the mystery. Through Jesus, we have clarity about what God likes, about what God is like. If you've ever asked, if you've ever wanted to know what God would say or how he would respond, how he would treat someone, how he would handle a situation, how he would speak to somebody, before Jesus we wondered how God would handle those things and now we simply look at Jesus. The disciples don't get it. This is the last night of Jesus' life when he's saying these things. Judas will leave the room and go and betray Jesus. The rest of the disciples will abandon him. And it causes you to, to consider maybe they weren't so confident in Jesus being God after all. But don't miss this. 
The reason that we know these stories is because of the men who were in the room with Jesus that night. They abandoned him for a time, but they came back. In fact, the next three days for them would be pretty ugly, some of their worst days, certainly not their best moments. But something happened on that third day. Something shifted all of history and the men who didn't get it, the people who didn't comprehend what God was up to and they didn't understand his plan, the people who believed that Jesus was God but couldn't understand what God was trying to do, these men who did not get it watched him raise from the dead and then it started making sense. John 14 doesn't make a whole lot of sense until John 20 in the empty tomb. That's when things start to click. And they realized that they had been gazing at the face of God for over three years. That's when it made sense to them. If you're struggling with this Jesus guy and the mystery of God, Jesus had compassion and patience for people who struggled to get it. If you want the mystery to be solved, though, look at Jesus and in his resurrected body. Look at the one who's resurrected from the dead. It absolutely changes everything. It's a like father, like son moment. Our God is eternal. He does not die. So is there any surprise that his son would come back from the dead? It's like father, like son. You need to hear this. Sometimes we diminish Jesus to having the best explanation for who God is. Sometimes we treat Jesus as being the best teacher or that he was the best prophet. He's the one who taught us the most or led us the most. And that's not the point. It's all true, but it's not the point. Jesus doesn't have the best explanation of God. That's not what he came for. Jesus is the only explanation of God. There's a big difference there. He didn't come to explain God better or teach us better. He came to show us God. He's the only explanation of God. And so if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus comes into the world and he illustrates, he demonstrates, he communicates who God is. He shows us like father, like son. He says that if you want to see the father, look at me, what I do, what I say, how I love, how I treat people, that is who God is. And above all else, what is that greatest mystery that Jesus has most revealed? What is the most significant thing that Jesus has revealed? What mystery has he resolved for us? God loves you. Seriously. God loves you. The creator of the universe, the God who made all things and spoke things into being actually loves you. In fact, he loves you so much that he sent his son into this world to represent him to remove the the mystery. He wanted you to know who he was. And the reason that we celebrate every year a baby who is lying in a manger is because God loves us and wants us to know him. He loves us so much. You are the reason for the season.
Yeah. 
Tell it on the mountain. Tell the world about what Jesus has done for you, okay? Have a good week, and we'll see you at Christmas Eve.